good afternoon, everybody. I want to welcome everyone back to the uh, episode three of season two of The Legal Zone. I'm your host, Regina Campbell. And I have the pleasure today to bring our second part of three-part series regarding international arbitration and litigation on the importance of governing law clauses. I also have the pleasure, I, I, we'll take a step back for a moment. Last, uh, if you recall, the first part, we had uh, Mr. George Berman on the line, so to speak, that talked to us a little bit about um, and gave us pointers and tips to take into consideration when entering into an international business transaction and agreement, as well as the importance of understanding the legal issues that one should consider when drafting a governing law and venue clause. Uh, so we're hoping today to bring you a second expert, and you can see him on the line. I'm going to introduce him because he has a, an amazing background, and I think it'll lend itself to understand um, information and the tips he's giving us, the importance of it, and the rarity of it uh, to help us practitioners and business people alike. Um, our guest today is James Claxton. He graduated from Tulane University Law School. He has an LLM in International Business Law from the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's an accredited by leading arbitration and mediation institutions in Asia, and he specializes in commercial and investment disputes under civil and common law, as well as investment treaties arising particularly from commercial, communications, construction, engineer, investments, intellectual property, and transportation services. Uh, Mr. Claxton is also a full-time academic uh, in Japan, outside of his practice, he is a professor of law of Waseda. I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> University. Good. Yeah. University. <laughs> and a member of the adjunct uh, faculty of White and Case International Arbitration, LLM, at the University of Miami. Welcome, Mr. Claxton. Thank you for being our guest today. It is a great pleasure. And I, I commend you on this initiative. Your, your range is really extraordinary in the types of legal issues that you're taking on. So congratulations, this is a great project. Thank you, thank you. It's, and it's, uh, we're, you know, being, being in Miami, it's becoming so much more of an international hub. And I think it's so important for us to understand, um, not just as attorneys, but to help our clients, our clients understand the importance of contracts, what goes into these decisions, making decisions to go abroad and conduct business, what's involved in it, what can you do to help yourself? Because it is becoming more and more a globalized economy and world, so to speak. So, so I want to. So the first question I want to ask you, and this caught my attention, was uh, investment disputes brought under inter, um, investment treaties. That sounds very interesting. Uh, can you tell us what are the various treaties that you have experienced, investment treaties you have experience with? Sure. Just sort of as as background, there are around three thousand treaties, uh, bilateral investment treaties, uh, with states on both sides. The intention of those treaties is to promote investment. Then there are around five hundred additional treaties that have investor protections built into them. They're not specifically investment treaties, but they have these investment protections. Um, and so I worked as an attorney on uh, cases involving these kinds of investment treaties, uh, working for parties, either for states or for investors. And I also worked for an institution in Washington called the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes. And there I basically assisted tribunals, arbitral tribunals who were working on these uh, investment cases. And so I've had experience with about 10 different investment treaties, most of them involving parties in Europe, Asia, and Africa. And also had I also had experience on something called the Energy Charter Treaty, which is a very specific investment treaty in the, in the energy sector 
that has, I think, around um, 50 state parties. So those are a couple of the of the different instruments that have that I've worked on. Maybe just um, a, a quick word. I'm sure you you have a very sophisticated of, um, audience of listeners, uh, but a quick word about investment treaties and what makes them um, unique because they are kind of special. So as I mentioned, the investment treaties are meant to promote investment. The the early treaties were really aimed at driving capital from the comparatively capital. Uh, rich part of the world toward the developing uh, world. Right. Now the investment treaties don't necessarily target that dynamic. There are plenty of treaties between um, on balance capital importing countries and on balance capital exporting countries. But the treaties are are special in the sense that they really, they fl the obligations flow in one direction. It's basically a series of commitments made by states that intends to encourage investment into the state. Uh, something else uh, kind of interesting about the treaties is they provide the possibility for uh, arbitration directly between an investor and a state. So although the, the parties uh, to the treaty obviously are states or countries, uh, they do provide the possibility of arbitration proceedings directly from a private investor against the state. And is that to encourage investors to want to come in so they have an idea of what to expect or some of their game? Is that what that's for? Basically? Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. It's it, it, it's really about legal certainty. If if there weren't the possibility of arbitration, then the investor may be discouraged because the best option might be either bringing a case directly against the state in its home courts uh, or trying to rely on some sort of diplomatic protection involving uh, its home state and putting pressure on the state to make amends where there's been damage to an investment. So it's really, you're exactly right, Regina. It's really about um, uh, certainty and uh, minimizing risk in the eyes of the investor to try and encourage the investment. That makes, makes, makes sense. And I assume it's been fairly successful with certain countries that have uh, more, I guess, structurized or structured or certainty in these treaties because it then the investors are more likely to come in so that makes sense correct <laughs> great yeah and we can we can, we can come on to the certainty point which is a really interesting point uh, maybe maybe one uh, one other feature of investment treaties that's not common it's not specific to treaties but that is certainly an issue in treaties is about legal certainty and the nature of the commitments made by states in the treaties is often quite vague so, for example, treaties will frequently provide that the investors will be treated fairly and equitably. And so you might you might ask the question, what does that mean, fairly and equitably? And many, many tribunals have dealt with this question, what exactly is meant when, when a treaty says fair? So although they are meant to promote legal certainty, uh, the nature of the commitments in the treaties does give rise to some interpretive questions. Okay. And do, do these treaties usually announce which arbitration organization will hear the, hear the dispute? Do they try to limit in that way or structure procedural or substantive sort of application of law within those arbitration organizations for these treaties? Yeah, great. So, Regina, I think here, here we have to talk about the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, because most investment cases are brought under the auspices of that center. That center is a, an organ of the World Bank. And it has some really unique features that we can we, we can talk more about. But one of the features is that it is entirely delocalized. 
meaning that uh, you know when you think about arbitration, you think about a place of arbitration, a seat of arbitration. Exit mm-hmm. proceedings, uh, most exit proceedings do not have a seat of arbitration. Uh, so that's just to point out that that this is a very particular system, the 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 exit system, and it has certain advantages that are very attractive to investors. Uh, one main one being that enforcement of the award should be easy mm-hmm. under 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 the exit system. It's not always easy, uh, but mm-hmm. at least in at least in the in the exit convention, the enforcement of awards is direct. There is no basis for resisting enforcement the way that there would be under, for example, the New York Convention. So that's ICSID. And I bring up ICSID because your question was about what options investors will have. In most investment treaties, ICSID is one of the options that's available. And then typically there are other options available. Some investment treaties will uh, specifically identify institutions and others will simply leave it to the investors and the states to choose an institution once a dispute arises. Okay. So it seems like uh, that that would seem attractive to be able to, I mean, I, the New York Convention, of course, has quite a bit of protection and some certainty, but as we were talking with Mr. Berman in, the, in part one, it's still subject to certain attacks on bias, certain ways that arbitration provisions can be attacked by a country. So it seemed that it'd be more uh, attractive to have uh, it, uh, bring something under sick, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think I think the, the 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 enforcement is one of the reasons why if parties have the choice in the treaty, they often will choose this type of okay. of arbitration. Exit has other advantages. The fact that it's part of the World Bank just may uh, suggest a level of formality uh, that is attractive. Uh, there are also interesting aspects in terms of the process. Uh, the, the pricing is different than other arbitration. So there are a whole variety of advantages to exit proceedings. And so if it's possible, it's not always possible, but if if the jurisdictional requirements can be met, uh, investors will often choose uh, exit proceedings over other options in the treaties. Okay. So that kind of answers some of my other questions that I had about, uh, so not only just what are the differences between the treaties, and I guess we can't get into all 3,000 of them right now, um, but also, uh, you know, do you have the choice to, to arbitrate um, or choose, you know, governing the law or other kind of, uh, do you have the same freedom in these type of contracts that deal with investment treaties uh, that you normally do under sort of the typical Western type contracts that, that allow for quite a bit of contracting and freedom to contract? Right, right. So um, I think the first thing is to 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 go back to ICSID. So if, if if the interest is whether or not the investor can choose the place of arbitration, if they choose ICSID proceedings, this particular type of proceeding we've been talking about, then there really is no no place of arbitration. It's entirely delocalized. It's an entirely self-contained system. And to be a little bit more concrete about that, so normally if a if a, a parties to a contract, commercial contract, were selecting a seat, they'd be thinking about things like um, how, to what extent will the court um, help if there's a need for help from the courts in the arbitration? For example, if uh, one of the parties, if the respondent fails to appoint an arbitrator, can, can the investor or can the, 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 the claimant or the plaintiff go to the courts and ask the courts for help? Um, so that's one of the ways that uh, that 
court involvement is important. That is not part of the ICSID system. There is no There's defined no system that the, the parties can, can, uh, can go to. Uh, so at least when talking about the ICSID system, the choice of seat is irrelevant because there is no, there is no formal seat. There's no place that parties can go during the arbitration process for assistance. The other reason that seat is important that I think you talked about with Professor Berman and uh, what an honor to follow uh, Professor Berman, um, but uh, that also is where the parties will go if they want to try and challenge an award uh, in commercial arbitration proceedings. So on limited grounds, uh, if a party is unhappy with the result of an arbitration, they can go to the courts at the place of arbitration and they, they can raise certain arguments to have the award annulled. In the exit system, that's not, not possible. There's a self-contained uh, annulment process that the um, parties will go through if there is a challenge to the award that's entirely independent of domestic courts. Okay, amazing. I, I, I do, but do most uh, do most other? Uh, I, I guess with the treaties, we were talking about the treaties. Particularly, you can choose uh, what arbitration seat. I guess to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. If you choose another arbitration seat, do you see uh, or if you, another organization? Do, does basically the treaty itself uh, control or minimize the different seats or the law, the governing law within each internet? Uh, I guess investment treaty itself, right? As I know you, you can sometimes choose your own arbitration seat, but does it have any, what other type of restrictions do they have? Okay, great, great. So um, I guess one very basic point to make is that of course the treaties will be negotiated and decided by states. So the investors won't have any input uh, on these types of decisions, at least on the, on the front end. And so normally the law that applies will be the treaty itself, mm -hmm. which is international law, in addition to general international law. And then there may also be a provision in the treaty that provides for the application of domestic law in particular circumstances. So, for example, the laws of the host state, the state hosting the investment, um, might be relevant to the conditions of, for having legal investment. And so in that case, the host state law would also be an applicable law under the treaty. And then in terms of the place of arbitration, if we're not talking about the delocalized ICSID system, the treaties don't tend to specify a place of arbitration in other arbitration proceedings. They simply leave it to the parties once a dispute arises to choose uh, a seat at that point. Okay. So the parties still maintain within the parameters of the treaty, uh, the treaty some, some freedom of contracting, it sounds like. Some, some ability, I'm sure there's still conditions, particularly within a country and, and how much investment and limitations of ownership and, and things of that nature. But at least it sounds like there's some room for picking governing, uh, you know, governing law and potentially venue clauses within the treaty. Yeah, indeed. Certainly, certainly, venue could could be something that the party could negotiate uh, once the dispute arose. Um, again, unless we're talking about this very specific exit system. Right. Okay. Very, very interesting. It's not something I normally hear about, so I was very excited to understand that. Um, and, and you know, you don't have experience in there. You don't understand. You're not sitting sort of in the circumstances and the surroundings to get to feel that as a lawyer, to understand those limitations and uh, definitely need to lean on someone like you that has the experience to, what, what is this really like? What's the practical reality of, of getting involved, potentially investing in other countries? Um, and what does this look like? 
So also I want to ask you, so what is also the, uh, we also wanted to talk about what kind of commercial cases do you arbitrate or mediate as well? Good. So, so, so personally, um, when I was in practice, I practiced in Paris for about six years. I had a general commercial practice um, dealing with a whole host of different issues, some IP issues. I had uh, some construction disputes. The last dispute I had was over the manufacture of a yacht. I had a big construction dispute involving uh, a South African state entity, or sorry, a North African state entity. Uh, so I had a general commercial practice. Uh, these days I work as arbitrator and mediator. I don't do a whole lot of work directly for clients. I do some uh, consulting, uh, but not a lot of direct client work. And uh, there also it's general commercial. The last uh, two cases that I had as arbitrator, one involved uh, a licensing agreement, uh, agreement for a sports uh, figure. And then I had a, another case involving um, a, a technology dispute. So it's kind of a, I have kind of a general, a general uh, background. And mediation is pretty much the same. I'm very much oriented in uh, toward commercial disputes. Okay. And so, any any tips you have, um, whether you're in your practice as being a lawyer or an arbitrator? I mean, obviously, an arbitrator can't as an advocate continues to be an advocate as well. Uh, but an, or a mediator. When you see, you've probably seen cases where okay, this could have been more clear in a contract, or these are some of the things that. Uh, maybe to stay on topic with the with the podcast today, something like a governing law provision became more complicated because of the way it was either written or what law it defers to when there was uncertainty in those laws or so anything of the nature you can kind of give us tips on because we always hear some horror stories. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, maybe one one thing that I would say is that you know, parties may be in a position in negotiations uh, to give uh, on law or to give on the place of arbitration. Uh, and there may be a question, so strategically, what, 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 what should I value more if, if, if there is this kind of a negotiation? So my, uh, my own take on this is that the place of arbitration, the choice of the place of arbitration is really important. Um, because if the parties have to rely on the courts for assistance during the proceeding, or if there's a challenge to the award at the end, mm -hmm. uh, the courts become very, very important in the process. Whereas the choice of governing law, it's, it also can be very important. Uh, but in my own experience, um, often disputes are decided on the facts. I'm sure, Regina, you have had the same experience. Um, and even where the law is relevant in terms of Airing and where it comes up in cases, um, at least in my part of the world, often the laws in this part of Asia are based on more familiar laws to me uh, from Europe and the United States. So it may not be as difficult to come up to speed on small differences uh, between a law that an attorney is familiar with and the law of the place. Um, um, the law chosen to apply in an arbitration. That may be less of, uh, of a hurdle than being stuck in courts uh, where there's a lot of uncertainty about outcome. So I guess one, one strategic thing that I might mention is that where there is a choice between pressing for a particular law or pressing for a particular place of arbitration, seat of arbitration, that it might be worth thinking seriously about the importance of the place of arbitration. Okay. I, that makes a lot of sense because even if you have a, the, you may not be able, you, if you choose governing law, the courts themselves where you're sitting might be not applied the same way, may not apply it fairly. 
there could be a lot of factors that go on in bias, at least if it's at a venue that you think you can get a fair shot or potentially can learn governing the law better might be a better trade-off. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So it, it, what other tips do you have? It seems like you work a lot of when I read your profile in China, Korea, Japan, of course. Um, talk to us a little bit about what it's like to, I guess, I mean, what are the legal systems there? Uh, you know, with, how friendly are they to contracts, to transparency, to different issues in law? Yeah, good. So, so there's of course a lot of uh, variance between the the different state, the different countries in in Asia. Um, but I would say for probably for people watching this and for your 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 clients, I think it's important to talk to um, to local counsel if at all possible, or at least to parties who have experience in the particular jurisdiction where there's a, a business activity that's possible or investment that's possible uh, to get specific advice because there is quite a lot of variance from uh, for example from Japan to 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 China uh, one I guess one thing I would say is um, even the idea of contract culturally can be different as yeah. you move from from one country to the next so the importance for example of a huge amount of detail in contract uh, that sort of we, we have as uh, U.S. trained uh, yes. lawyers, it, it, might, it might not be that way in in, in, a, in an Asian jurisdiction where things are a little bit more bare, bare bones and a lot goes unsaid in the contract. So at least in terms of contracting, I think it's it, it's useful to uh, to get to speak to someone who actually has experience with a particular jurisdiction to avoid any any potential uh, problems. That makes sense because we definitely, I mean, often I'm asked if we're charged by the minute or the word or, you know, like, you know, we're always concerned, especially I don't know if it's a common law issue because it, because we, we deal with common law. So we're trying to cover, we meant this, we meant that uh, just in case this, you know, because we're trying to avoid certain precedences uh, in either state or federal, depending on the circumstances. Uh, so it's a little bit of a, it might be, it might be, I might look crazy if I bring in one of my paragraphs. <laughs> you, know, you know, maybe somewhere, to, somewhere else. So that makes all the sense. I mean, how do you, I mean, how do, uh, I guess, is it, I mean, is there, do most business people there, do they, like in China, let's say, for instance, do they use a lot of the court systems or do they use the arbitration systems more? Do you have, do you have any knowledge as to whether there's a preference mm -hmm. in, uh, in the East as to like the use of courts versus arbitration? Yeah, I, th I think they're they're really too. It depends on the jurisdiction. Uh, so Singapore, when when speaking about you know, East Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, has really taken off as a, a hub for international arbitration, and that's had knock-on effects in in the region. So uh, companies are increasingly comfortable with the idea of arbitrating disputes they may have wanted to push towards the courts uh, previously. Um, uh, and the same kind of thing I'm, I'm most familiar with with Japan. I won't pretend to be an expert in all these different jurisdictions, uh, mm -hmm. but in Japan, historically, there hasn't been a whole lot of use of commercial arbitration or investment arbitration. But recently, there have been lots of different uh, initiatives to try and promote the use of arbitration, and they do seem to be getting some some traction. Uh, so I think I think it's sort of a mixed bag in terms of how much uptake there is for arbitration. But I think the general trend in this part of the world is um, an increase in the number of arbitrations and then also an, an increasing interest, it seems to me, in the use of mediation, uh, both as a way of avoiding arbitration outright or uh, uh, better managing arbitration 
once the arbitration is underway. Okay. And do you have any other recommendations for arbitration? Or I mean, I know you don't want to necessarily give preferences. You're, you work with a lot of them. Um, but do you find any, maybe from a business point of view, a commercial point of view, are there different arbitrational uh, seats or organizations that are maybe more suited for um, business transactions or international transactions in Asia? Any specific ones you can recommend or there might be one's better than the other for certain cases or certain situations? Right. Well, I think I think uh, with 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 Japan, uh, there's the Japan Commercial Arbitration Association, and so Japanese counterparties to contracts will be very familiar with this institution. Uh, so that might be worth putting on the table. Uh, it's an institution that's undergone a lot of recent change with uh, modernization of their rules by increasing their staff um, and by becoming increasingly transparent. Uh, uh, they've, they've taken a lot of steps recently to provide information to the public about the way they operate and about the, 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 the arbitrators who worked on the cases in the past. So for, for Japan, I think that's always an option that's worth, uh, for Japan-related um, business, I think it's always an option worth putting on the table. I think otherwise, the obvious choice would be, uh, would, would be Hong Kong and Singapore. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in particular, Singapore. Singapore really stands out in this part of the world. So both the, the institution, the Singapore International Arbitration uh, Center, um, and also the, uh, the platform for arbitration are, are, are really sophisticated. So there are great yeah, hearing facilities within Singapore where arbitration hearings can take place. Uh, the, the, the Singapore institution is very international. So there's a governing body that's made up of uh, arbitration uh, practitioners from around the world. Uh, so it, it, it truly is an, 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 an international organization uh, with a very sophisticated secretariat and the number of cases that they administer keeps increasing. And um, within even the Asia Pacific region, there's often an, an instinctive choice of Singapore, even where there's a local institution like, like here in Japan or in Korea there may be a, a sort of instinctive preference for Singapore because they've just done so well with mm -hmm. arbitration recently. And that's not to denigrate the Japanese institution or Korean in, in institution, which are both excellent. But I think parties uh, just because of, for historical reasons, are often mm -hmm. most comfortable with Singapore. Very interesting. Great tips. We love it because we don't, we won't always know. <laughs> we don't have, that's why we're going to, we lean on people like you for that expertise and to help us navigate sometimes and and if anyone needs any assistance it helps people know where to go and maybe where to start so some tips for practitioners and business people alike because uh, i know a lot of business owners too and and ceos and directors and and they're always looking at what how can we improve things or if we want to go into a certain area how do we deal with certain issues so they're also interested in this information as well Good. yes yeah Happy so well, it was a pleasure. I, I think we got through our questions sort of, um, you know, like this, but we got through them. <laughs> so I want to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, would you like to share anything else with the audience or anything else that we even thought of about tips or anything? No, I think I think just maybe because we began with uh, investment treaties, I think one thing that uh, listeners of this might might try and keep in mind is that there may be treaty protection um, behind their commercial activity, even that they're not aware about. Uh, and it may actually have relevance to how uh, investments are structured. 
So it may be, for example, that to take advantage of an investment treaty, it would make more sense to organize the investment through a subsidiary in a country that has lots of treaties with favorable conditions to investors. So maybe, maybe that's my closing thought is that sometimes this investment treaty system is underutilized or not well known to certain investors. So I think fr from the investor's perspective, it's worth doing a little homework to find out what kind of treaty protection there is and how the investments can be structured to take advantage of, of these treaties. That's a great tip. Didn't even think about it. I didn't even think of that. That'd be great. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's why we have you on. <laughs> so thank you. that was a great tip. I didn't even, right when you're saying it, my light bulb went off and I was like, oh, <laughs> so wonderful. Thank you so much. I thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it so much, Mr. Claxton. And um, I, it must be early there, right? Early in the morning. No, it's it's it's, it's a very civilized seven uh, seven thirty in the morning. So it's really it's really no no problem. Okay. At all. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, being up early with us. Uh, you know, this morning. And Not at all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Maybe we can do it again someday in 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 Miami if I have uh, the good fortune to be in Miami. Yes, let us know if you're going to be here. We'd love to do it in person. And, and if I can get down to Japan, we'll do something there too. I'd love to, like we talked about, a beautiful time of year to come. Indeed. You're warmly welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.